Job chapter 6. And our study tonight is entitled, Job's First Reply to Eliphaz. Job's First Reply to Eliphaz. When Job answered Eliphaz, he asked him to do two things. First, Job asked his three friends to show more understanding and sympathy toward him. That's what he does here in chapter 6. Then he asked God, God, would you just think about what I'm going through right now? And would you just kind of, you know, give me a break, relieve some of the sufferings that I'm going through before I die? And we see that in chapter 7. Job's answer to Eliphaz's first speech, which was in chapter 4, shows that Job is still, he's still puzzled about why he's going through what he's going through. And he's deeply bothered by his affliction. And Satan is putting Job through as much misery as he can, trying to get Job to turn away from God. And the things that Job says here is spoken out of, out of suffering. And, how, you know, many times when we're hurting and we're suffering and we're confused, we, we say things sometimes that, that aren't right. And, and they don't make sense. And that's what's happening to Job here. He's speaking out of his terrible suffering. It's, it's physical, it's mental, and it's spiritual pain. And Job's answer is a sign of the rambling of a mind that's suffering from great pain. So this makes it hard for Job to get his thoughts together and to, you know, to express himself with certainty. So Job starts to answer Ephelias' first speech by describing the difficulty of his suffering. And it seems obvious from what Eliphaz says that Eliphaz really doesn't know how much suffering Job is going through. So Job is going to try to fix that problem. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. Then Job answered and said, Oh, that my grief were fully weighed and my calamity laid with it on the scales. So Job here is making a, a grief-stricken request. He says to his three buddies, he says, Guys, look. I can't even start to tell you how terrible my suffering is. I can't explain to you this awful thing that's happened to me. So you can see that Eliphaz hasn't helped Job one bit. And so far, all he's told Job is, Job, you you have some secret sin, man, that's going on in your life. And the thing that you need to do right now is repent and get right with God. Now, this is not always the right thing to say. And Job is saying, you need to understand, man, what I'm asking you. Because Eliphaz had totally missed the point. Eliphaz said a lot of nice things. He said some good things and some true things. But they didn't apply to Job's affliction. They didn't apply to his situation. So they didn't help Job. Job needs more than what Eliphaz has given him. Job's affliction was much heavier than his friends realized. The stress of his affliction made his, his affliction very severe. Job said, if you could put all of my problems on a scale, one side of the scale would be loaded down with my problems, and the other side would be loaded with the stress that equaled his problems. That would show how heavy his problems were. It's a figure of speech that was used in that day to describe the severity of the misery that he was suffering. Look at verse 3. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words have been rash. 
He says, if my misery could be weighed on the scale, they would outweigh all the sands of the sea. That's why I spoke impulsively. The sand of the sea would be a very heavy burden. But the sands of the sea aren't enough to show the weight of Job's grief. Because he said his grief would be heavier than the sands of the sea. The figure of speech shows how heavy Job's grief is. His grief and pain is extremely great. And it's a lot more than his three friends have figured out. And this great weight shows how great Job's suffering is. So Job speaks about two particular severe problems that have come to him in his grief. Look at verse 4. He says, For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. My spirit drinks in their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Job describes his calamities as arrows of God. He speaks of both pain, that is the arrows, and the poison of the grief that he's going through. His grief makes him sore and it makes him sick. He says, my spirit drinks in their poison. Job's suffering was very severe. Later on, Job is going to mention again the terrors, he says, that have come from God in chapter 7. Great suffering works on the mind and it causes fears and anxieties for the mind that is not fixed on God. Isaiah 26, 3 says, You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. You will have an inward peace, an outward peace, peace with God, peace of conscience, peace at all times, under all trials. God will give you this peace and, and, and keep it whose mind is stayed or fixed on him. Because you see, that mind trusts in God. It's the nature of every good man and woman that trusts in God and puts himself or herself under his guidance and his leadership. And they depend on him. And it will be a great advantage if they do. Those that trust in God have to have their minds fixed on God. Don't let them stray. Don't let Satan whisper in your ear all these doubts and all these fears. And trust him at all times under all trials. And you have to be steadfastly and faithfully following him and to be totally satisfied in him. And those who do will keep in continual peace and that peace shall keep them. And when they hear bad news, they won't freak out. They'll be calm and collected. They will expect whatever is going to happen and they aren't going to be stressed out by terrifying worries arising from them because their hearts are fixed on and trusting in the Lord. Psalm 112 verse 7 says, He will not be afraid of evil tidings, that is bad news. His heart is steadfast trusting in the Lord. The unsaved especially experience these fears and anxieties because you see, they don't have any hope after they die. None whatsoever. They have a good reason for their fears and their anxieties. Because you see, spending eternity in hell is definitely terrifying. Job knows that he said some pretty strong things in his complaint back in chapter 3. But here now, he speaks of those words and his present words, which he spoke because of how bad he was suffering. He said in verse 3, my words have been rash. And because he spoke impulsively out of pain and suffering, 
And he spoke distastefully and argumentatively that they aggravated his three friends and especially Eliphaz so that he gives counsel that did not correspond or match the situation Job was in. Verse 5. Job says, Does the wild donkey bray when it has grass or does the ox low over its fodder? And the answer is no to both questions. Animals don't bray or low, you know, when they have food. It's only when they're hungry because they don't have any food. So Job says the reason that he spoke his rash words was because he was suffering so much. He didn't speak from comfort or abundance. And when a person is distressed because of a great problem, they'll moan, they'll groan, and they'll often say wrong things, irrational things. And this is pretty predictable by people who suffer. Verse 6. He said, can flavorless food be eaten without salt or is there any taste in the white of an egg? Food that's not seasoned and bland, nobody wants to eat it. They don't want it. It's the same way, Job says, because his suffering is so severe. So severe. It's made life a drag. It's, it, it's a miserable journey for him. And suffering can take the joy and the excitement out of life. So Job's illustrations here are good ones. Food that doesn't have the needed salt, it's bland. It's tasteless. It has no taste. You don't want it. Suffering can make life bland, tasteless. That is life without taste or flavor, you know, to be pleasing or to interest you. Verse 7. He says, my soul refuses to touch them. They are as loathsome food to me. In other words, he says, because it's so bland, I lose my appetite. The life that I have been served, that I've been served, it's sickening. What, What has been dealt to me is sickening. So the application is that Job's suffering has forced him to go through some disgusting conditions that he wouldn't have touched before. The nauseating sores that he has, that he has to deal with from time to time. Those are involved here. And a lot of people can relate to this situation because a sickness, as, as a lot of us know, it can produce physical conditions that are disgusting. But the sick person has to live with it continually and they have to deal with it every day. It's all very humbling. The miserable condition added to the severity of Job's suffering. It's humbling. Verses 8 and 9. He says, Oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant me the thing that I long for, that it would please God to crush me, that he would loose his hand and cut me off. So after Job talks about how bad his grief and suffering is, he asks again to die. Job wanting to die was a major subject in Job's complaint back in chapter 3. And now he asks again in response to Eliphaz's speech. He says now what he was asking for, you know, it, it wasn't good. And we need to understand this. What, what he was asking for wasn't good. He wanted to die. But the, but the person Job was asking was correct. Everything that we ask for needs to be asked of God. We need to ask God. And we really make a big mistake when we ask man about the questions of life about the truth of life, about the things of life, we make a big mistake when we don't ask God, and instead, many times, we go to people. We go to people. 
Look at the look at the shape our world is in today. Because of man. Because of his stupid thinking and stupid ideas. And it's because they've left God out of the thought process. Now Job didn't demand that God do what he wanted. He just simply asked God, "Would you please do it, Lord? Would you just let me die?" When we pray, we need to respect God. God doesn't owe us anything. We aren't we aren't owed an explanation for what goes on in our life. We need to respect the wisdom of God that God knows exactly what he's doing, why he's doing it, and that I need it. We need to respect his wisdom, his will, and his way for my life. Unless what you ask for is clearly what God wants to do, we need to be careful that we don't demand of God. But ask, Lord, if this is your will, grant it. John said in 1 John 5.14, Now this is the confidence that we have in God, that if we ask anything, notice, according to His will, He hears us. We need to understand that if we ask according to His will, He hears us. If what I ask for is something that is in the will of God, if it's something that God wants, then He listens to me. But how many times do we ask God for things that aren't good for us? Oh, Lord, if you let me buy this car, if you let me make all this money, or Lord, if you gave me that girlfriend or that boyfriend or this house, or oh, Lord, I'll, I'm just, you know. Well, wait a minute, God, what do you want for me? What is, it, what is your plan for my life? Job's question is in line with the wisdom and the sovereignty of God and recognizes that we might be asking for something that he wouldn't approve of. And and I look back in my life and I look for some of the things that I prayed for and I look at it now and I go, God, thank I'm so thankful you didn't answer that prayer. Because some of the things that we ask for would really hurt us, would mess us up. James chapter 4, verse 3, this is what he says in the New Living Translation. He says, when you ask or when you pray, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. And usually, isn't that the truth? Oh, Lord, if you give me that, I'll be the happiest man, the happiest woman in the world. And guess what? After after the shininess wears off and the newness wears off, guess what? We want something else. Because nothing in this world truly satisfies you completely. And later on, Job's going to be critical about God's actions. That is about what God does about his suffering. But here, he at least shows some respect for the will of God. So why did Job pray to die? What caused and motivated Job to make such a horrible request? And maybe some of you have asked that at one time in your life. I know that in the past, I can see how people come to that conclusion. Because Satan will run that idea right through your mind. Oh, if you were dead, things would be a lot better. Really? There's there's a heaven and a hell after you die. And I tell you what, hell is a lot worse place than than anything you'll ever suffer here. And you need to understand that. 
Job made this horrible request. Why? Job gave three obvious reasons why he wanted to die. And this is, these are the reasons that Satan will place in your mind that if you died, you'd be better off. First of all, Job thought that I would be in comfort. I would be, I would be comfortable if I was dead. Look at verse 10. He says, then I would still have comfort. Notice that. Though in anguish, I would exult. He will not spare, for I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. So the first reason that he wanted to die, he says, look at, I'll still have comfort. And when we live in this life and, and things go bad and, and we're bummed out and we're not comfortable and we're hurting or whatever it is, we, you know, we think, man, if I was dead, this would all be over. So comfort is one reason why he asked God to die. Job believed that dying would end all of his pain and bring him comfort. But again, this is a humanistic and pessimistic view. Because it doesn't take into consideration that in eternity, like I just said, there may also be suffering, especially for those who don't know Christ, for those who aren't saved. And I tell you what, that suffering in hell will be a lot worse than any physical suffering experienced in this life. And it will be for all eternity. What we suffer here, hey, it's just a passing thing. But that suffering in hell and eternity will be endless. Now, the saved person might argue since they're going to heaven, they'll be better off to die than to live. And yeah, but if I'm going to die, let it be in God's timing and the way he wants it done. But to die like Job wants to, it can cause a loss of rewards in eternity and that loss won't be compensated by ending physical suffering. You see, we need to let God decide on how long we live. In Deuteronomy 32, 39, listen to what God said. God says, I kill and I make alive. I kill and I make alive. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men to die once. God is the one who calls the shots. Warren Wiersbe said this. He said, Wanting to die isn't the answer to despair because it's selfish and doesn't glorify God. The real answer is to die to self and to trust God to work things out. The second thing, the second reason why Job wanted to die was confidence. Notice what he says in verse 10. He says, I have not concealed, that is, or denied the words of the Holy One. Job was confident of a pleasant eternity because he had been faithful to the word of God in his life. Job had been very faithful in his suffering. He said, despite the pain, I was still faithful. Job didn't hide his faithfulness to the word of God. Job had openly showed loyalty, faithfulness to the word of God. So this gave him confidence that, that if he died, it would be better than this suffering. And even though Job couldn't see the whole picture in wanting to die, his confidence and wanting to die, it was right on. A person who has submitted faithfully to the word of God and has stood by the word of God, even in tough times, hard times, will have more confidence about a pleasant eternity than the sinner will. And when a person comes to the end of their life, confidence in where they spend eternity will not be based on how successful they were here on earth or how famous they were or how wealthy they are. 
or were, or their position in life. It's not like the old bumper sticker says, the man who dies with the most toys wins. (laughs) That's far from the truth. Where you spend eternity will be found on your attitude towards God and His Word. And the person who has received Jesus Christ as their Savior and have made Him their Lord, they will have confidence that the person who rejects Christ won't have. See, Job wasn't afraid to die. Because, you see, his hope was based on his attitude towards the words of the Holy God. The words of the Holy One, he says. His confidence was founded on solid ground. And if you're not founded on the Word of God, you're you're standing on shaky ground. It's like at the beach when you stand stand in in, in the water, on the sand, and the water comes, and you go out, you can feel the sand moving from beneath your feet. And times it makes you, you know, wobbly. Because you're standing on shaky ground. But when you're standing upon the Word of God, you, there is no stronger foundation than the Word of God. Then the third reason that Job thought it would be good to die is because of his present situation. Look at, look at where I'm at now. Another reason Job wanted to die was because of his present situation. In other words, it was good from man's perspective. It was good for Job's perspective that that, that it would be better for him to die. You see, Job had no power for living. He had no prospects for living. His quality of life, he's thinking, what do I have to live for? I don't have power to change things. I have nothing to look forward to. So he thought, you know what? Because of my present situation, it would be better if I was dead. Verses 11 through 13. He says, what strength do I have that I should hope? What is my end that I should prolong my life? Is my strength the strength of stones or is my flesh bronze? Is my help not within me and is, and, and is success driven from me? You see, Job's affliction has taken away his strength. So, so here's what he's thinking. Like I said, what do I have to live for? I can't do anything. Now, this is not a good reason to die. Or I say not a good reason for wanting to die. Because, you see, this kind of thinking leaves the power of God and the will of God out of your life. God does not do things in your life randomly. Nothing happens in your life accidentally or that God has not allowed or even planned. There have been so many people and Christians too over the centuries who have been very disabled physically, but they have done so much more for God. Many of them have done more for God than those who are in the best of health. The accomplished of many disabled Christians put the rest of us to shame. Their challenges, their disabilities are what inspires them to do great things. The words I can't are not in God's vocabulary. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Job's prayer here, Lord, just let me die. It's not justified. 
And just because a lack of strength and quality of life, you know, is happening, it does not justify giving up on life. It doesn't justify quitting. Secondly, Job didn't see any prospects for living. Verse 11, notice what it says. What strength do I have that I should hope? And what is my end that I should prolong my life? He says, because of this terrible affliction, I don't see any hope for things getting better. Now, we can all understand Job's hopelessness here. Because maybe a lot of us at some time had felt like giving up, throwing in the towel. And figured out, you know what, this, there's going to be no end to this. We have no expectations for things to get better. When, when we've been suffering and we're hurting so bad that, that it's blurred our vision, it's blurred our hopes. When clouds and darkness come into our life, it's the habit for a lot of us to think we're done. Our hopes are grim. We might as well just quit. See, Job was, Job was thinking like this. And with his suffering being so terrible, we can understand why he thought this way. But once again, this kind of thinking leaves God out of your life. And the end of the book of Job shows that Job's pessimism was so wrong here because the end of the book shows Job prospering better than ever. At the end of Job's life, God doubled everything that he lost at the beginning. So Job is definitely wrong here in wanting to die. His future hopes were great. Why? Because they were in God. And they were in his power. And, and, and he himself cannot change the will of God. After telling how terrible his suffering was, and again saying how he wants to die... Job rebukes Eliphaz. And even though sometimes it seems like he's talking to all three friends, which would be okay, because the other two friends would prove to be just like Eliphaz in what they had to say. Not helpful to Job in his situation. Eliphaz was the most outspoken of the three friends. He was the first one to speak, and his speeches were longer than the other two friends. Look at verse 14 now. To him who is afflicted, kindness should be shown by his friend. Notice, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. This is what Eliphaz failed to do. He had come to comfort Job in all of his problems, but he failed to do that. He failed to be a comforter to Job. Eliphaz blew it as a comforter and a counselor. And in Job's rebuke, he explains Eliphaz's defectiveness and he describes it in detail. What a comforter is supposed to do is show some compassion and sympathy for the one who's hurting. But Eliphaz hasn't done that. Instead, Eliphaz was critical of Job and telling Job, you must have messed up in your life, man. You must have done terrible or or God wouldn't be doing this to you. All Eliphaz did instead of comfort Job and, and, and 
sympathize with him and, and be with him. Instead, he just added more to Job's suffering. When a man is down and in despair, you don't kick him. It's said that Christians are the only ones who shoot their wounded. Sad. When a man is, da- man is down and they're in despair, Job felt that his friends should have been loyal. And even though Job was in terrible pain and suffering, he hadn't turned away from fearing God. But even if Job had turned away from fearing God, he would still need friendship. He would still need companionship. Eliphaz should have been willing to go so far as to show, show Job compassion and kindness, even if, even if Job had failed in his fear of God. Just in case Eliphaz might drive him farther away from God. And you know, that's something you always have to keep in mind. If you, you're going to talk to your friends or you're going to counsel them or, or, or give them advice, you are either going to bring them closer to God or you're going to drive them further away. That's a, that's a huge responsibility. When you are going to speak in the name of God, or you're going to give them their word, give them God's word. You better know what you're saying. Because you will be held accountable. Eliphaz failed to comfort Job. He failed his friend big time. Verses 15 through 20. Job says, my brothers have dealt deceitfully. Notice that, like a brook. Like the streams of the brooks that pass away which are dark because of the ice and into which the snow vanishes. When it is warm, they cease to flow. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. The paths of their way turn aside. They go nowhere and perish. The caravans of Tima look. The travelers of Sheba hope for them. They are disappointed because they were confident. They come there and are confused. In other words, Job is accusing Eliphaz of being dishonest here. And the way Job describes Eliphaz's deception is that he's comparing Eliphaz's deception to streams in the winter that have a lot of ice and snow. But in the summer, when it gets hot, they're all dried up. So when people came to them in the summer looking for that water, they're disappointed because there's no water for them or their animals. You see, Eliphaz looked promising. He looked like one of these you know, refreshing rivers. But then when Job needed him, he was empty. Dried up. Nothing good. Eliphaz looked like these streams, like a source of comfort with helpful water for those who were suffering from the heat. But when the thirsty came to him, and in this case, Job, the stream was dry. No help. It was a good picture of Eliphaz and what his other friends became to Job in their, in their empty talk, their useless words. Many things look promising, but when you drink from them, you find out they don't quench your thirst. They don't help you. Like sinful pleasures that appeal to the flesh, they're deceptive and they don't satisfy. Oh, but the living water from God's streams That is his word. They will never run dry. Verse 21. 
Notice Job says to him, for now you are nothing. You see terror and are afraid. Job's terrible condition really worried Eliphaz. Because he thought only divine judgment would cause such a great affliction like losses of children, possessions, and health. You know? Eliphaz couldn't imagine anybody going through such a horrible thing as Job is going through without... You know, there has to be sin in his life. And that's, be, and that's the cause for such judgment of God. And they started to worry about being too friendly. Because they thought, you know, gosh, Job, man, he's being judged by God and he's being judged pretty harshly. You know, and if we get too close to him and if we show him any sympathy, he says, they were afraid that God might bring judgment upon them. All of this fear was a roundabout way of saying, Job, man, you are suffering because you messed up. Because of sin in your life. Verses 22 through 23. Job says, did I ever say, bring something to me or offer a bribe for me from your wealth or deliver me from the enemy's hand or redeem me from the hand of oppressors? Job's rebukes. Job's rebuke here says Eliphaz was so inadequate. He wouldn't even help Job by giving comforting words. A small job. That's all he had to do. But he failed to do it. Job says, I didn't ask you for money. I didn't ask you to go and save my cattle from those guys that stole it from me. The fact that Job didn't ask Eliphaz for a large gift or to do something great, it suggests that he expected him to at least do the minimum. Something that he could have easily done. Like just speak comfortably to him. But Eliphaz failed to do even the the minimum because, you see, he was so terribly inadequate in the way he acted towards Job. We need to learn from, from this great book. Eliphaz and his three friends came to Job thinking, man, we're going to we're going to comfort Job and, you know, we're going to tell him what he needs to know. And, And he wasn't he wasn't qualified. He was inadequate for the job. Then Job rebukes what Eliphaz said. Notice in verse 24. Job says to Eliphaz, teach me and I will hold my tongue. Cause me to understand where I have erred. The words of the comforter should instruct and help somebody understand their problems better. Eliphaz didn't do that. He hadn't helped Job one bit by anything that he said. The things Eliphaz said only accused Job of sin. But this didn't help solve Job's problems. Because Job's suffering wasn't caused by sin. But Job says, look, I will respect good teaching. And I won't say a word. I'll hold my tongue when I'm being taught. Verse 25, how forceful, notice how forceful are right words, but what does your arguing prove? And nobody will argue with this. If Eliphaz would have had the right words to say, 
and would have said the right thing, he could have been a big help to Job. The effect of the right words is great. That's what what Job would have liked to hear from his friends, the right words. Eliphaz's words for Job's situation were empty. They were useless. They didn't prove Job's guilt convincingly. The things Eliphaz said had no value when it came to Job's suffering. Verse 26. Do you intend to rebuke my words and the speeches of a desperate one, which are as wind? Job now focuses on the accusation, the accusing problem of Eliphaz. And that he was judging Job about his affliction based on the complaint Job made back in chapter 3. Now, Job realizes that these words, what he said, due to the affliction that he was suffering, he realizes they were desperate words. I was speaking out of suffering, like the wind. But what I said shouldn't be used to condemn me for my affliction. Because the words came after the afflictions, not before. You see, Job's words, what he said in chapter 3, are not the cause of his afflictions. But the result is. So Job rebukes the condemnation by Eliphaz because it was based on his words after the affliction, not on his words before the affliction. If Job hadn't made the complaint he did in chapter 3, his friends probably wouldn't have been so down on him and ready to condemn him. Job's complaint brought upon him a lot of, you know, Troubling criticism. When they heard Job's complaint in chapter 3, they used it right away to decide what they were going to say to Job. But it caused them to fail. And then really examine Job's situation properly. Verse 27. Yes, you overwhelm the fatherless and you undermine your friend. Mistreating an orphan has always been considered a very evil thing to do. Orphans are at such a disadvantage and they're deprived. And this describes how Eliphaz treated Job. Job is desperate. Job is sick. He's deprived. And yet Eliphaz treats him unkindly. Verse 27, notice, he says, And you undermine your friend. You undermine your friend. This picture of digging a trap for careless animals is for something you want to catch. And digging a pit is cruel when you want to trap a friend. So the three friends seemed so against Job as if they were taking unfair advantage of an orphan or selling out a friend. And Job's last rebuke is against Eliphaz for dishonoring Job by accusing him of doing evil. Verse 28. Now, therefore, be pleased to look at me. For I would never lie to your face. What Job says here is that Eliphaz failed to base his judgment on facts. Just to look at Job was enough, according to Job, to prove he was a man of integrity. But to judge him, not based on facts, that's a bad thing to do. It brought judgment on Job that greatly dishonored him. But you know what? It happened to Jesus, too. Jesus was accused of all kinds of evil things that he didn't do. Jesus was sinless. 
perfect. No faults. But he was accused of things and dishonored. Jesus was not based was not judged based on the facts. He died on the cross for you and me. Because he was judged by lies and, un, and, and non-truth. It greatly dishonored the Lord Jesus by hanging him on a cross because a common criminal was, was, died that way. That's the way the, the common criminal, criminal was executed, by hanging on a cross. And yet the Bible says Jesus just went around doing good. But God's people will often be judged without the facts. And there's so much of that going on right now. It happened to Jesus. He wasn't judged based on facts. But God judges according to the truth. Verse 29. He says, yield now. Let there be no injustice. Yes, concede my righteousness still stands. Job has been accused by his friend Eliphaz of sin. And he pleads with Eliphaz to give a better judgment. Where Job's righteousness is honored. Job was greatly dishonored by being accused of evil when he was really righteous. Verse 30. Is there any injustice on my tongue? Cannot my taste discern the unsavory? Job believes that he hasn't said anything evil, but Eliphaz has ignored this fact about Job's righteousness. Job says, hey, I can discern good from evil. Which says he does good and not evil because he's able to discern what is good and what's evil. Ignoring Job's righteousness had dishonored Job. In closing, Job finished his talk with his friends with a loving request for them to just think about his situation some more and take a more loving approach. Verse 29, he's saying, look, guys, stop assuming that I'm guilty because I haven't done anything wrong. Job's three friends were so bent on defending themselves that they forgot to comfort their friend. Father, we thank you so much for your word, Lord. We thank you, God, for your spirit who brings conviction to our hearts and our souls, Lord. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. Father, I pray Oh, Lord, in these, in, these, in these days that we're living, God, these last days before Christ returns, God, help us to look around at what's going on. Help us to see the signs, God. And God, help us to, be, to base, base everything that we say and do on facts, God. Not what we've heard, Lord. And Lord, I pray for those here right now that may not know you. 
who have not received you as, as, as Lord and Savior. If God's Spirit has spoken to you and you recognize, I need Christ. I'm going to die one day. But if I die without Christ, I'm going to hell in the eternity of suffering. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if you're here right now and you want to receive Christ, lift your hand up and then put it back down again. Anybody at all. It's just a simple prayer of repentance. Anybody at all. Father, thank you for this day again, and we thank you for saving us, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sunday, praise the Lord. We are